Welcome back to another episode of The Doctor's Dilemma. I'm your host, Dr. Adil Mansour. This is the podcast where we discuss the challenges, the dilemmas that physicians overcome to have the opportunity to practice medicine. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of The Doctor's Dilemma. Today, I have an amazing colleague of mine. Uh, we went to medical school together. Interesting story. Uh, we did used to like lift in the gym together. That's how I primarily know this physician. Outside of that, we were both very independent. Went to class if we felt like it, didn't go to class if we didn't feel like it. Nevertheless, I've known him for a while. Now it's coming down to about eight years. Uh, actually, I'll call it seven years because first year of med school, I don't know if we met, but nevertheless, his name is Dr. Dante Paredes. He's a family medicine physician currently practicing in Dallas-Fort Worth area of North Texas. He completed his family medicine residency out of Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine located in South Jersey and is currently completing a second residency in osteopathic neuromuscular medicine through the University of North Texas Health Science Center and Medical City of Fort Worth. He completed his medical school education at Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine and his undergraduate education at Rutgers University with a degree in cell biology and neuroscience and philosophy. His academic interests are centered on strength and conditioning, cultivating mental and spiritual health through physicality, creating a secular definition of the soul, and the philosophy of osteopathy. Very happy to have Dr. Paredes here. How are you doing? What's up? Solid introduction, although I won't comment. I did meet you during first year of med school. <laughs> you were one of the first people uh, I actually spoke with. Because if you remember back when we had to record our, like, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm from blah, I'm, you know, specifically after we're doing the icebreakers, I, I commented that I uh, teach Filipino martial arts. That was like a little fun fact about myself. And after everybody kind of said their piece, you found me. And I forget the exact way you delivered it, but it was something to the effect of, yo, you got knives. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy asking me if I'm, like, carrying a knife with me? And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. He, I said, I teach Filipino martial arts. I found out, like, 10 seconds later, you trained Krav at the time, or you were starting to train Krav. I can't remember exactly. So I was like, all right, guys, this guy's kind of weird, but, you know, screw it. What's up? It's funny you mentioned that. I'm trying to recall, because I remember when we did the icebreaker introductions, it was, like, in front of, like, the whole school. And I think I messed up. I said something silly, made everyone laugh. And then I think I do remember you, I really have to think, to be honest, uh, saying something. But the reason I probably came up with the knives is I grew up just throwing knives with my best friend and I. We used to just destroy our walls, throw knives. So I think that's why I must have approached you. That had to be we the reason. We would have gotten along really well in college. That, that sums up a pastime for me. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's been it's been a fun four years. Uh, how'd you like the med school? And uh, you know, what have you been up to nowadays? Honestly, med school was was good. It was brutal in the way all med school training seems to be. But I'll be honest, I kind of like that. I, I enjoyed the crucible hellishness of having to crush that much data and put it into my head so quickly. But since then, life has been better in a traditional sense. I don't have to stay up three days at a time anymore, which mm -hmm. is a plus. Life is good, man. I'm working in uh, Texas, married, have a kid. My kid talks now. His favorite number is two. <laughs> Specifically because if he says two, he expects you to say three, and he knows when you count one, two, three, something cool is going to happen, like you're going to surprise him. Uh -huh. So he'll go two, waiting for you to say three. And if you don't, he'll go three, throw his hands up, and run around the house like a madman, <laughs> come back to you, and start it all over again. And it's... <laughs> It is so ridiculous, but that that's pretty much what my life is right now, and I wouldn't have it any other way. 
That's awesome, man. And what about work? How's that treating you nowadays? I know you're finishing up completely your final few days of training left, right? And then you're going to start being an attending somewhere? Yeah, we're going to call it my final 24 hours, actually, as of T-minus three minutes ago. Wow, amazing. Freaking amazing, yeah, man. It's It's been weird, man. Good weird, but like... I don't like schooling much to begin with. That's never been my game. I do my residency, finish my residency, and then I decide to do another year, uh, a victory lap, apparently just because I'm a masochist. But it's been a good year. It's been a very good training year. I came out with much more knowledge and insights into my field, uh, neuromuscular medicine, the osteopathic medicine, than I thought I would otherwise. The things I wanted to learn coming in, I was like, all right, as long as I learn these things, these like two or three things, it's been a productive year. I learned them in my first month. And I'm like, all right, what the heck am I going to do for the remaining, like, 12 there's 13 months to our cycle so that's why 13 i see and it was nothing but good nothing but good dude if you can you know for the people who are listening if you can like in a nutshell define what is osteopathic neuromuscular medicine and uh, why you chose to pursue that route as opposed to the traditional medical route so there used to be a way that whenever you finish a AOA residency, you could do an extra year in osteopathic training, specifically for manipulation and osteopathic principles and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. My intention was to do something of that sort pretty quick on once I realized that I was interested in that type of stuff. With all of the changes in leadership and whatnot, this is just the thing that it's called. So if you're familiar with the plus one training that was offered, this is the same exact thing. This is that, as far as what I signed up for. That may not be the case starting next year, but that's that's what that is. I chose it because a lot of the problems I was trying to take care of in a primary care setting, sometimes you have a medical problem, you need a medical solution. Sometimes your medical problem is actually an engineering problem that you think is a medical problem, in which case you need an engineered solution. And the osteopathic training is really good at making engineers out of our hands. Does that make sense? Yeah, to clarify a bit more detail for those who are completely unfamiliar with the concept of osteopathic medicine, how would you differentiate it from, say, you know, physical medicine and rehabilitation or chiropractic medicine? That's a question I like. So as far as differentiating it from physical medicine rehab from PM&R, there's a lot of common ground as far as what we're doing philosophically, you know, and within our day-to-day. What really differentiates us is an explicit focus on uh, palpation, on hand skill, on something called osteopathic manipulation, whereas physical medicine and rehab is about, says it in the name, physical medicine and rehab. The osteopathic training doesn't necessarily encompass the sum total of physical medicine. We are particularly focused on manipulation, and in the case of my specific place of training, acupuncture, which is a fun extra, but it's the manipulation that makes it different. Now, as far as the differentiation between that and chiropractic, that's really a scope type of issue. So the chiropractic schooling makes you a uh, manipulative therapist versus the American osteopathic training makes you into a physician uh, trained in manipulation with all of the underlying principles. As far as practical application, I tend to describe it as the chiropractic training is very focused on spine, bones, nerves. That's kind of in their academic training, their theoretical training. It's always from the perspective of bone, spine, nerve. The osteopathic training, it's not that it's different. It's that it's broader in its scope. It's not just about the bone, spine, the nerve. Sometimes it's about your fascia. Sometimes it's about your blood flow. Sometimes it's about your actual metabolism, as in the more medical side of things. Sometimes it's in your psychology. It's a broader appeal. It's a broader function that happens to be manual in its end output. Does that make sense? Yes, I think you put it very concisely. If you had to say, you know, give an example that uh, an osteopathic physician who specializes in this sort of medicine when it comes to treating a medical condition 
can you give me an example of a medical condition that an osteopathic physician would treat that, say, a chiropractor can't treat or doesn't know how to? So I must admit limitations here because I haven't done chiropractic training. So whereas I work with them to some degree, I don't actually know the full extent of their skill set. Caveat there. So if anything I say is wrong, chiros, call me out, please. (laughs) As far as what I know, something that we're particularly good at or something that we're particularly well trained in that is a bit foreign is actual infectious work, to be specific. I was teaching a bunch of medical students a couple of procedures that they can use for their family practice setting. They're doing a program where they do family medicine and OMM together, osteopathic medicine together, in a rural setting where they don't necessarily have access to uh, specialty level work, at least not easily. They brought up some more questions. Well, what can we do that's, that's relevant? And I told them, like, every now and again, this doesn't sound like a rare one, you're going to have a patient with, God forbid, a cold. And you're going to think, okay, they have upper respiratory symptoms, they're having, you know, cough congestion, let's focus on the congestion, and you're going to want to give them something like, let's say, Flonase or Sudafed. And most of the time, that's a good move. Most of the time, that's a good enough move in all seriousness. However, every now and again, this doesn't sound like it's going to be too rare of a situation, you deal with somebody who can't tolerate or can't take Sudafed or Flonase, such as, you know, a two-year-old. And what do you do then? You have a kid who can't take any of the medications that you're trying to use in the the broader demographic. The kid still has his symptoms, and the parents are still concerned, and you're thinking, ah, but it's also just a cold, and maybe I can just tough it out. What's the consequence? What's the big deal if my kid has a cold and doesn't really deal with it? And then the challenge to that is something along the lines of, if this is a chronic issue, one cold, yeah, I agree with you, I don't care. But if this is a a repeat problem, and you're telling me this kid's eustachian tube is always clogged up, what you're telling me is this kid's not going to learn how to speak and hear within the window that they can learn how to do that, and that's actually something I care about. One of the things we can do for that is put in ear tubes. That's an ENT procedure. That's an ear, nose, throat surgical procedure. You make a little hole, you put a little plastic tube in there, and then you're good to go. That drains, that keeps the pressure equal. However, every now and again, for whatever reason, the patient either may not have access to ENT work, they may be honestly just not able to get the surgery for a thousand different reasons. And then you're like, all right, what do I do for this patient? Because I can't give them meds, I can't do the surgery, what's left? There's a really nice maneuver called a gull breath maneuver, which I know you and I both learned in med school, which I'll be honest, I didn't give much credit to back during med school, not even during my family medicine residency. Mm -hmm. But it is, speaking as a parent now, ridiculous how useful that specific move has been in helping keep my kid from needing antibiotics for otitis infections. And at the same time, doing it in the office, patient comes in with his or her parents, your pain symptoms, I look inside, there's some fluid in. I'm looking at that like, I can do this gall breath maneuver for about 30 seconds, get some meaningful benefit, but it's going to pull back up. How am I going to make this meaningful? Then I go, hey, wait, I can teach the parent how to do this because this technique is actually really, really, really easy. Hey, mom, hey, dad, come here, check this out. Give me your hand real quick. Put their hand on their kid's face. Show them how to basically massage the eustachian tube from the outside in just a way to get it to milk out that fluid to drain so that fluid congestion behind the ear isn't the thing anymore. And fine, it's going to collect again as long as that kid is sick, but they can just drain it again. Keep it clear, keep it clean, and all of a sudden the kid's symptoms are meaningfully better. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's amazing, man. That is very beautifully explained, and I think that example in itself uh, does a phenomenal job explaining what osteopathic physicians who do osteopathic manipulation have to offer to their patients. Appreciate that. it. This is a true story, by the way. No, I, I believe it. You know, I don't have a kid yet, but uh, when I do, I'm pretty sure I'll be utilizing it more. And now that I'm out of training, uh, when I do start my own practice, I will be utilizing this heavily. And I'm pretty sure I will be consulting you and other colleagues since I have not specialized in this sort of training for any kind of advice. Fair enough. 
So that does bring to question your first question, which was like, why did I take the special T level training? Because mm-hmm. you get a lot of this in your primary care training if you're trained through a DO school. Part of why I wanted to do the extra year of training was because I actually really do enjoy talking about this work and teaching it. So the extra year was, in all sincerity, to get me to a level of skill where I'd feel comfortable teaching it to my peers versus just being able to do it in the office setting uh, for my patient's sake. It's, it's a different level of communication skill. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So tell us, why did you choose to become a physician? So it's a weird story, admittedly, because the way I tend to answer that when people ask is I tell them I lost the bet. Because I lost the bet, I became a doctor. (laughs) Go on. Which is technically true in the purest sense, essentially. I'm not going to go through the entire story, but a very close friend of mine, um, my best friend, honestly, in college, wanted to be in a fraternity with me, but we didn't have a fraternity to be in, so he convinced me to rush in a fraternity. And, you know, considering that, you know, this, you know, I'm really close to this dude, I'm like, all right, screw it, let's do this. Lo and behold, I end up applying for a med school fraternity, and uh-huh. my dues and all that stuff paid for essentially training and dues for the MCAT, which I didn't know necessarily what that was at the time. So I'm like, all right, I'm in a frat now, and I guess my job is to take the MCAT because that's what the fraternity brothers here do. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool frat in that regard, I guess. So I took it, and I actually got a pretty decent score. My expectation was that I would vomit and just go back to my usual um, course. I was a neuroscience major. My initial thought process was that I would be working in um, the neurosciences or maybe something psych-related as a researcher, not as a physician. But I did decent on the MCAT, and I'm like, if I got a score this good, I should at least apply to one or two schools. So I applied to one or two schools, and then I got in. And then at that point, I'm like, okay, this is a sign, man. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to do this. I did way too good for somebody who wasn't supposed to care. And I applied to two schools. Apparently, applying to med school is hard, and I got into both. There's something from above saying, I got to change course here. I didn't necessarily know or want to become a physician until I already got accepted to med school, as weird as that sounds. But the moment I made the gear shift, the moment I thought, you know what? Okay, fine. I'm going to want to be a doctor. It came pretty quick what kind of doctor I wanted to be. The reason I wanted to do neuroscience work and psych work was because I want to be in a position, I want to be in a place where I can help people live a better life. That was the specific mission. And I meant that most broadly as a kid. And as I kind of matured into my training, that became more so about resilience and strength and being able to endure the stressors of life, you know, walk nobly and walk strongly across life. That's a pretty decent goal. Mm -hmm. And when I realized I was going to be a physician, or rather when I realized I was going to go to med school, because that's not necessarily the same thing, I kind of crystallized that thought process into those words. I'm going to find a way to use this degree to make people stronger. That was going to be my mission. So happy accident, I guess. That's how it started. (laughs) I've spoken with quite a few docs, and uh, you're the first of the stories that I've had so far that has this unique perspective, rather unique circumstances that allowed you to become a physician. So, you know, you could have still chosen to walk away, could have been like, you know what, I don't want to do this, I want to continue to go into the neurosciences, perhaps going to psychology, whatever it may be, you know, but the concept, I, I believe the concept of wanting to do medicine sometimes is influenced by someone, you know, in your childhood. Do you feel that there was someone who influenced you to consider medicine someday? Or was it just a personal choice? Now, there was definitely pressure to move in that direction. So my father is an engineer. My mom is a nurse. And they kind of wanted, in, in the way that you know Asian Americans grow up, they figured I was going to be one of those two things, something medical, something engineering. When it started becoming more real that I was going to probably be a physician, there was a good amount of forward momentum and positive feedback from the family saying, all right, cool, this is going to be a thing. Awesome. My son's a doctor. I'm like, I'm not a doctor yet, guys. Stop it. But there was, there was honestly a bit of that. 
It's one thing to say that there was pressure from the family to be a physician. Honestly, it was well received. I didn't resent the idea. I didn't. I wasn't forced to by any means. In fact, and this is not something that most folks get the chance to say in this situation. My mom was pretty okay with the idea of me not being one once I really started to take that idea seriously. So it's weird. My family supported the idea. They were a little bit ambivalent, but when it became real, they were part of the good pressure that made me go. You know what? I'm going to keep on this course. So I know you mentioned it. Just briefly of how you decided to choose to take the MCATs and go into medical school, can you delve a little bit more into how hard was it for you to get into medical school, and what pre-medical school preparations did you have to undertake? As far as difficulty to get into med school, again, it's a hard thing to con- to conceptualize difficulty because it was such a almost on a whim behavior. The hardest part about the med school process, or about the med school application process, was convincing my advisors that I was even a worthy applicant because. I did all my prereqs by virtue of my actual major, so that was not an issue. But I've done no extracurricular in this regard. I've done no research. I've never shown any interest in being a physician. So I remember this was in college. My um, college advisor straight up told me not to apply, and that if I did apply, that the university just wouldn't back me, which you kind of need for a lot of these applications.、Mm-hmm. That was my biggest barrier. Me being stubborn and not necessarily taking the process seriously enough, kind of didn't care. But trying to figure out how to convey to applicants why I was so out of the blue, out of nowhere, an applicant was interesting, if nothing else. As far as how to prepare prior to that, a lot of the training you have to go through in order to do a rigorous cell bio and neuroscience program,、mm-hmm. thankfully, overlaps with bio. Thankfully, so just by virtue of me trying to not fail out of my program, that kept me in good terms as far as doing what I needed to do to study for the MCAT. The only thing that was really Separate that I had to prepare for, that I had to study, was physics. Because as comfortable as I am with the electro side of physics, mechanical completely outside my academic study. So I had to go back to Newton stuff pretty hard for about a month.、Hmm. So how did you get your school to back you up? Because if I recall correctly, you do need that special letter. If you were told that they are not going to support or back you up, which Believe it or not, I'm not surprised. I went to Rutgers also.、Um, I know what that place is like. But nevertheless,、yeah. how did you get them to write you that special letter or back you up? I'll be honest. I don't know. I have no clear answer of what the heck happened to make that happen. I remember scrambling in some sort of righteous rage to get a couple letters letters of rec just to prove them wrong,、mm-hmm. and then somewhere along the lines, everything just started falling into place. I don't actually know what changed. I don't know who I spoke to or what I did to make them back me. I wish I did because that would make a damn good story. But <laughs> I'd be I'd be lying to you if I said I knew. Is that fair? Yeah, you know, I am thinking it's just the emotions. That you had to undergo, you know, the way you're describing your story, it sounds like your preparation was last minute. You're like, you know what, I'm gonna go into med school now. It's not like the others who've been planning this since day one, and you were just what I would call it in like a straight up beast mode, where you were doing anything and everything you needed to do to get to your goal. Am I correct to assume that? I mean, that fits very well in retrospect.、Mm-hmm. Like I like that image, like a beast mode version of me applying. I just wish it was that. Deliberate. The thing I can't downplay enough was that this phase of my、um, emerging fledgling doctor persona、mm-hmm. was stumbling through. I didn't know I was going to be what I was going to be until I was. That type of deal. Now, once I got into med school, there was clear direction and like a mission. But this version of me, I don't know what possessed me to care enough to do this in spite of the resistance. I'm. I'll call it beast mode, just because I have nothing else to call it. No, because that's what it was. Think about it. 
the way I see it, man, you got people that got so much help, you know, they got plans, they got this, they got that. There is even some like programs that are at Rutgers University for minorities that work very well in helping you prepare. You, on the other hand, you decide, you know what, I'm going to med school. I got my back against the wall. I got no support, especially from the institution that is supposed to be supporting me. You just found a way to get shit done. Am I right or wrong? That is accurate. That, that in its most pure form is accurate. And that is what I call beast mode. You went straight up beast mode to get into medical school to get what it is that you want. Fair enough. I'll concede that. I'll concede that. <laughs> <laughs> it has a nice ring to it, so I'll concede. <laughs> Listen, man, I've uh, worked out with you in the past, and I've seen you work in medical school, and I have seen you go beast mode. And I have, in my mind, been like, holy mother of God. Like, especially when, I don't know if you recall uh, lifting with you, like for, you know, in terms of size comparison between you and I, like, I was like, how is this guy stronger than me? Like, I am definitely taller than you, a bit heavier than you. But then when it came to like, mind never matter and like seeing you deadlift, I'm like, holy shit, I have to actually catch up to this guy to be as good. This guy's just like straight up beast mode. And that's what I call it when I see you doing crazy things. When I see you telling me all these different stories that you've told me in the past, I'm like, oh, this guy just went beast mode. Like just recently when we had a conversation, you talked about your thought process of just taking time off for a week and going like writing the way you wanted to write and then how you ended up the way you ended up. It's a long story. As you were telling me the whole story, I was like, oh, man, this guy went beast mode again. So that's what I call it. I call it Dante's beast mode. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so Perhaps forced through pressure and a little bit of confusion, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it tells you what the human mind has the capability to do, especially when its back is against the wall. Tell me, what attracted you to this medical specialty? You know, you chose family medicine and then neuromuscular medicine afterwards. You could have gone into anything. You could have gone into surgery, neurosurgery. Uh, why did you choose this specific specialty? When I focused on the, or rather when I realized that the goal was to make people strong, and I figured that was going to be like my, my tagline for the movie that is my head, I guess. I originally thought I was going to do psychiatry. Hmm. That, that's actually what I was going for. Uh, full bore, I figured I was a neuroscience guy, I was a psych guy, I was a philosophy dude. By training, it made sen it would make sense that I do something neuropsych related. Mm -hmm. So I started in that direction and I put a lot of my academic interests in that direction for maybe the first couple months of med school. But what happened really quickly was one, I became enamored by biochemistry. Mm -hmm. God forbid I actually enjoy biochemistry. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> But I also had friends who worked in psych in various capacities, and I was learning rapidly the limitations of that field to treat the thing that I wanted to treat. I wasn't necessarily all about the schizophrenia, the bipolar, the anxieties and the depressions per se. I really just wanted to make people broadly better. And that didn't quite fit into the realm of psychopathology as much as it did. Almost like this weird branch of a thing that didn't quite exist yet called wellness. Mm -hmm. Hunting for a place that would allow me to behave as such, I ended up landing in family medicine initially. Uh, family medicine was a place where, one, it's technically primary care, two, you're not dealing with the sickest of the sick, sort of. You kind of are nowadays, but the idea was that, oh, if you're doing primary care, you're doing preventive work, your job is to uh, not just treat disease, but foster health. And I'm like, that sounds like that could theoretically be me. Let's go for that one. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, I start working in family medicine, and I find out that they don't live up to the tagline. Their version of finding health meant screening guidelines and prevention of disease, which in and of itself was its own disease, but that's a whole different ballpark. <laughs> so I was a little disillusioned. But I kept hunting for a way that I could find health 
and sincerely, like in a way that wasn't lip service, find health. And I was developing this idea in my head of health as vitality, health as movement, health as quality of life. And then the problems I started solving with my patients became centered around getting them to live better. But at its most reduced form, I should say, the most common denominator was getting them to move better. Mm -hmm. So I became their movement doctor. I became their mechanic to some degree as as a family medicine resident. And as I started solving diabetic problems, by getting patients to move better, it occurred to me that there was something really there about going through this filter of mechanical bodies. So that's when I kind of made the decision because I really wanted to just go straight into practice because spending a year extra in training, that's a lot of money you're not making. Correct. But I figured, look, if I'm going to love this stuff, if I'm going to perform at the level I want to, and if this stuff is so good that I need people to learn it, I'm going to do this extra year of training. So after doing my family medicine training, I did the neuromuscular thing. Now, there's a question of what made me even think to do the neuromuscular thing in the first place. I could have just done sports medicine because that's a very valid other route. And they have pretty good results. Look, that whole exercises medicine campaign is Mm -hmm. from sports medicine. And it's a great campaign. I'm all about it. Mm -hmm. So I came this close to being one of those guys. But the thing that actually pushed me over to the neuromuscular side instead of the sports medicine side was my uh, mentorship. Do you remember uh, Dr. Survey back when we were in med school together? Of course, who doesn't? Yeah, that guy. He got his meat hooks in me real real early, clearly. Uh-huh. When I was rotating with him as a third-year med student, I had a really profound experience working with him where me, him, and another uh, med student were you know, doing the manual treatment work on a patient. And for her, her pain was in a very, very broad sense, multifactorial, as in she knew her everything hurt, she didn't necessarily know why, but there's patients who are in pain and patients whose pathology is their pain, right? Correct. And she was more the latter, like her whole body screamed pain and trauma. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this lady. I'm not trained for this yet. I have no conception. I'm just like, her knee hurts and I got nothing. What do uh-huh. we do? And we start doing the osteopathic thing and there's this technique called balanced ligamentous tension or ligamentous articular strain. Essentially, you unload the body so that it can kind of reprocess and unwind and release its tensions and whatnot. It's one thing to say that I did a treatment and her pain got better, but by doing the osteopathic treatment, it helped her, I kid you not, remember what the heck happened that got her in pain in the first place, Wow. which is a big deal for a lady with, you know, chronic pain, amnesia, anxiety, and all that stuff. In retrospect, it would be be more appropriate to call this PTSD. We didn't know any of that because she didn't know any of that. All she knew was, hey, I'm in pain in my everything and I don't know why. But as we were doing the osteopathic treatment, the position of ease, as in the position her body seemed to really want to be comfortable in, looked like it was her sitting in a car, which sounds ridiculous. But if you looked at her in space and just see how we set her up in, like on the table, she looked like she was driving a car. And she didn't go full on say, oh, I remember everything. But after the treatment, she goes, I think I remember what happened. And she started to articulate vague memories of what actually occurred. And as she processed more and more of her pain, we realized that this is a PTSD pain. So we sent her to psych, uh, psychology specifically, to get some counseling and to kind of uncover and dive into those things. Essentially, her chronic musculoskeletal pain wasn't a musculoskeletal pain. It was, in a very meaningful sense, kind of in her head. What does that mean? That means that this is actually psych trauma-related pain. So we sent her to psychology to some degree to get counseling and to figure this stuff out. Lo and behold, the thing that we thought was a, you know, a chronic musculoskeletal pain, fibromyalgia, whatever, that type of deal. Turns out it was PTSD from a car accident. And as she got over that, all of her pain stuff got better, as in she got to come off her meds and she had a better life, uh, quality of life and all that good stuff. 
And I remembered experiencing that as a third-year med student, and that kind of stuck with me. Because when the time came to make a decision of, am I going to be a sports med doctor or a neuromuscular specialist as an osteopath, memories of that type of encounter made me go, I think I'm going to have to be an osteopath. Because that stuff is profound, like rip the ground out from underneath you profound. Yeah. You know, it goes back to the basics of, you know, osteopathic medicine in itself. You know, structure influences function and everything is interrelated, especially within the body. And by just doing simple osteopathic manipulation, well, I'm saying it's simple. It's definitely not simple. But by just doing something of that sort, you were able to figure something out that the patient themselves didn't know, which I find uh, an absolutely amazing story. Yeah, that essentially set the pace for my um, career decisions thereafter, because what I didn't mention was that actually convinced me to do PM&R for a while. But many things happened in between, and I ended up going back down the family medicine route. But I never forgot that interaction. I never escaped the, uh, we'll call it the training scar of seeing something like that happen, not just once, but for an entire two weeks on that rotation. Mm-hmm. You see that enough times, you go, there's some power in that. And, you know, if you want to do it, good for you. It seems to captivate me. It's absolutely amazing. It's something that, you know, you can offer your patients. You know, a lot of times in uh, today's world, you know this, I know this. Every single physician who's listening to this knows this. You know, we tend to be type of uh, human beings that tend to have solutions. We have to have solutions. We're quite good at it. If not, we figure things out. But when it comes to certain medical conditions like this, where we can't figure them out, either we say, oh, refer to rheumatology, or we just say, it's all in your head. And we don't ever want to admit that, you know what, there may be something there that I'm just not sure how to approach and should look for a different solution. And I'm I'm not saying everyone is like that, but, you know, quite a lot of physicians are like that. And I am no different when it comes to certain things. And I think the existing system where we are only given a few minutes to spend with our patients to be able to diagnose complex problems may even force us to you know, go into that route of thinking where we're like, listen, I got 10 minutes to figure out what you have. If I don't or I can't figure it out, you got to go somewhere else to try and figure it out. And what you were able to figure out in your specific scenario, you had time and you had the right time to be able to sit there, ask the right questions and then perform the right physical examination, finding and treatment to figure out what was going on. What do you think about that? One of the things I love about my the place where I practice is I have about half an hour with my patients. Now, some will argue that half an hour might not even be enough, but look, man, half an hour is way better than two minutes. So coming from an environment where I'd only have about five minutes with my patients, maybe if I'm really, really, really lucky, I'll have 10. Mm-hmm. But hey, you have 30 minutes dedicated to run this procedure. It's required if you're going to do something meaningful because one, humans are complicated, and two, the problems they come with are even more complicated. And if you think you can reduce it to a univariate solution in the course of about two minutes, it takes about a minute just to get to know somebody to, to the point where they're going to open up to you and tell you anything for real. The first couple words you say to each other are just kind of like signal noise to make sure you guys are both like not going to kill each other or something. I've had patients only open up in the last maybe five minutes of a visit. But everything before that, that 25 minutes prior, was the things we needed to do, like almost like the courtship dance between doctor-patient to like let them become doctor and patient instead of just guy taking my copay and person taking up my time. There's a relationship you have to establish there, and that's, you know, you try to establish a meaningful relationship in two minutes. Good luck with that. Exactly, man. You know, it takes time to build the friendship. It takes time to earn people's trust. 
And uh, we can just go on and on about how the existing system is completely broken, but uh, that is not the focus here, I'm sure. And uh, everybody else in this world, when I say world, I'm specifying in the United States of America, is already trying to tackle with the issues that the existing system has and is coming up with unique solutions. But that is not what we're talking about currently. So anyway, tell me. You know, now that you're almost an attending minus uh, 23 hours or so, you know, being a physician, it's a it's a very hectic job. Which hurdles did you personally face and how did you overcome them? Can you think of any specific examples or scenarios or perhaps a lot or none? I got into two car accidents, one of which told my car. It put significant strain on my relationship with my then girlfriend, now wife. My physical training and my health took a hit until I was able to get that under wraps. Name one of the problems doctors have minus suicide. I probably felt it at some point. But thankfully, I have a support system that, one, brought me back, two, kept me grounded so that even when I faltered, I never quite fell. I would stumble. One of the big ones for me was, so you comment on the beast mode version of the UC. I don't really see it that way, but I'm going to go with it. I get really, really, really into my projects. It becomes the all-consuming thing, whatever my project is. Like um, when I was trying to build the podcast that I have with... Uh, my co-host, uh, Dr. Aston, that became the singular focus of my life for about like four months, just reading and processing and listening to other people's shows and learning how to be that guy for about mm-hmm. four months straight. And that's stressful on the body. I got pretty sick at that time, actually, just because of all the lack of sleep and lack of every other maintenance behavior I needed. But thankfully, my wife was there to, one, call me out when it's happening, and two, she's known me long enough to know that if I'm about to go crazy into one of these modes, we set like strict parameters. So the way we overcame it was, I can go full bore at something for about two weeks before I have to bring it back in. Regardless of the status, it could be done, it could be not done, it could be halfway done, it could be right about there, but after two weeks, I've got to bring it in. And there's nothing magical about two weeks, it just sets a standard, you know, to come back, to look and reassess, to reorient, to make sure I'm still whole. One of the worst things you could do is completely surrender yourself to one of your pet projects and then lose yourself in the process. That's how people get burnt. That's how people, it's, it's a rocket metaphor, that's how you get burned out, right? Mm-hmm. I was like that during my first year of medical work, essentially. Uh, My intern year of of being a physician, I was trying to run a martial arts chapter plus train like uh, the athlete that I still thought I was. Technically still am, but it was a rough year. Plus learn how to be a doctor. Plus learn all of this wellness stuff on the side. Plus build up towards what was soon going to be my wedding. It was a lot of work to put on and parts began to fail. For example, I fell asleep on the wheel twice, maybe, maybe more times for all I know, but twice in a way that mattered. And that caused damage. Like that, that's not something that you just hand wave and say, oh, silly me, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, by doing that, I put significant financial strain on my family and a lot of fear into my family because what if I died the next time it happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Overcoming that took mostly a kick in the ass from my family, uh, my wife's girlfriend at the time, now wife, just to be humble enough to say, yeah, I fucked up. And the expletive is necessary there because the difference between a little mistake here, a little mistake is like, hey, look, I forgot to um, I know, start the dishwasher last night, babe, I'm sorry. I fell asleep at the wheel and I almost left you forever. That's all a fuck up. Mm-hmm. So having the humility to say that I fucked up that hard and then surrendering my ego such that I let her control my behaviors for the window just to get me reoriented, just enough that I can get my bearings straight again. That was a big deal because you have to trust somebody to do that. I mean, it's one thing to say you love your significant other. It's another thing to say that you trust them to run the controls in your system when you're no longer reliable to monitor yourself. That's a trust exercise. Mm -hmm. So that's how I overcame that. 
But the moment I had somebody who was willing to and capable of keeping me in check, those issues started to melt away. I began to be able to focus on my projects and come back before I did harm to myself and then reorient and then repeat and repeat and repeat. And that's been the pattern ever since. Even this most recent bout with the podcast, I focused hard, but I never got so deep that I was falling asleep at the wheel, not taking care of my patients the way I ought to, or not being present for, you know, my, my wife and kid. Because mm-hmm. as much as I love being a doctor, being a dad and husband is way more important to me right now. And hopefully that's going to be the case forever. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think the uh, dilemmas, rather the hurdles that you have overcome, you know, you've overcome with a lot of support, it sounds like, and and sheer will. But I think having your then girlfriend, now wife, played a really, really big role in helping you overcome them. Yeah. You know? I would say that it would not have been possible without her, in all seriousness. There's a high probability that I might actually be dead. Not because I wanted to be or want to be, but because I would have burned out in the most technical sense. And, you know, it's a, it's a follow-up question to what you just said, you know, depression. It's a very widespread phenomenon. It's often tagged as a serious disorder and usually not attended to, especially when it comes to physicians, especially when it comes to physicians. What is your take on suicide caused by depression among medical professionals, and what advice do you have for your colleagues? I don't have a good answer for that, unfortunately. It's such a ridiculously painful question to ponder that I don't know how to um, offer meaningful advice at the broad level, aside from talking to somebody one-on-one in that case. Person-to-person, we can say stuff, but across the whole spectrum of people who are feeling depressed to the point where they're about to break. I don't know. I'll be honest, I just, I don't know. I know the system is taxing. I can at least comment on the thing that puts us in the position in the first place. But once you're there, it's a dicey role. What's the specifics actually bring somebody into a better place? It's, I think, very deeply connected to our loss of meaning, perhaps. Maybe our loss of motivation. But that just sounds so plain when you say it like that. Have you ever read any Franz Kafka? Uh, no, I am familiar with him. I have a list of books that I'm going through, but okay. I'm definitely familiar with him. He's the one, is he the one that's like written um, books on uh, like medical industry or, or something of that sort? I, I have to think about more detail. That's more up to Sinclair from what I'm thinking, but uh, Kafka had this wonderful piece essentially about the ridiculousness of bureaucracy where this guy was convicted of a crime and because he was convicted of a crime, therefore he must be guilty, therefore the entire complex of his crime by virtue of him being in a machine made him guilty of said machine. But there was never any say of what the crime was. There was never any say of what his actual jury was for or trial was for. It was as if the moment the machine turned on, you were just a piece to be processed. That's kind of the way he writes. Hmm. Brutal, terrifying writing. It's not fun to read his stuff in the slightest. But there's this idea that the medical industry has become a Kafka-esque machine where the physicians, instead of becoming clinicians, right, that's what you and I trained to be, are becoming more like living gears in a machine. And that's very different from being a person. And the moment you become a living gear in a machine, I don't have a strong argument of why you should stay alive because that's not exactly worth it. The only advice I can give is on the preventive side is don't let yourself become a cog. But how do you do that? That's so case-specific, you know? No, it is. I think it's just a very difficult situation, you know, amongst uh, physicians, especially because we are perceived to be these superhumans who have the ability to overcome lots of challenges that we come across through life. And I think we also tend to think of ourselves as superhumans and we tend to neglect the 
psychological side that we all exhibit and we tend to ignore the fact that you know what we can become depressed we can become suicidal and you know in the recent couple of years to the last uh, i think decade or so more and more people are becoming very familiar rather more and more physicians and the world is starting to accept that there is this uh I would like to call it an epidemic of uh, depression and suicide amongst the medical professionals, specifically physicians, that needs to be tackled and overcome because, you know, I think uh, last statistics I checked a couple of years ago, about 366 uh, confirmed physician suicides. You know, that's about right. one physician committing suicide a day, every single day, and that's just really, really sad. Disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting is what it is. Not in the sense of shame on that guy or lady for killing him or herself. It's, it's a different kind of disgusting. Because I think the worst thing we can do is to think that once you're in a place that's that dark, that you're doing it irrationally. You figure you spend four years of undergrad, four years of med school, God knows how many years of residency, a lot of debt, a hell of a lot of debt, mm -hmm. in order to become a physician. And then the moment you're out in the world practicing, making decisions, you know, the stuff that you train to be, you find out that the thing that you thought you were going to become is nowhere even close to what you thought you were going to be. It's kind of like if you spent all this time worshiping a god, you finally got to meet your god, and then you found out that your god requires a blood sacrifice and it's you. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that? If you become so disillusioned in the world that you built, right? Because you don't just save the fact that I accidentally got into med school. You don't just become a doctor casually. The moment you're in med school, you're buying an entrepreneur, you're not going to make it. But you find out that this identity, this person you built of yourself to be is not worth it anymore. And with all the med school training, with all the residency work, with all the sacrifice you make, I have the privilege of saying that I'm a lot more than a physician. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a close friend to a lot of people, and I have a lot of deep connections to the people in my tribe. So there's a lot of me that can survive if the doctor part of me dies tomorrow. But mm -hmm. not everybody gets to say that they're much more than their work. And if all you are is a physician and you find out that you hate being a doctor, what do you say to that? I don't know, man. That's deep. That is very deep right there. So I wish I can give you an answer to the question. I kind of derailed it a little bit, but it's, that's where I'm at with it. If I gave you an answer, I'd be lying. And if I spun it any other way, I'd be lying. I'd be dishonest about it. But that's that's really where my head's at. It's I don't know. No, I definitely respect and appreciate that. I think your approach it's unique when it comes to the perception of the existing state of physicians. If say if you had to give advice in terms of you know handling work related stress, what advice would you give your colleagues in how they should have a healthy work life balance? Looks like you've come a long way, and you know it sounds like you have a pretty healthy work life balance. What would you tell medical students, residents, and your just your, all your colleagues? The thing that saved me was my people, 100%. I don't think I would have made it this far, and if I did, I wouldn't be the person that I am. I'd, I'd be something else. I'd be someone else, if not for the people that kept me on the straight and narrow. If I was becoming too fatigued and angry or burnt out of my work, there was somebody there to remind me of why I'm doing this in the first place. If I thought that this work was becoming so ridiculously bureaucratized that it wasn't worth it anymore, there's enough people that I love who I counsel that the fact that I can be there to help in that way makes the fact that I suffer worth it. And I mean, it's, it's that broader perspective outside of the office now. That's the thing that kept the work-life balance stable. It's actually having the other thing other than work. 
because most of us, what, we are Americans for the most part in this demographic, right, for your for your show? Yeah, most, it's targeted towards Americans, but I have people on other countries actually tuning in, which I find very oh. interesting. That's actually super dope. But the reason I bring it up is the way we work is at bare minimum 40 hours a week. Most of us don't work 40 hours a week. We work closer to 60, maybe 80, maybe 90, 100. We work ridiculous hours, and those ridiculous hours require sacrifice. And that sacrifice, most of the time, is the other parts of life. And now you don't have a balance. You have a lopsided identity. All you are is the doctor and maybe, I don't know, a pet owner. Maybe you go home and pet your dog. But look, I love my dog. But my dog is not enough to keep me stable. You know what I mean? It's knowing really, really early that the people you keep outside of medicine sounds kind of self-centered this way, but have a critical function to your soul. And respecting that and honoring that early on and never forgetting that, I think is the best advice I can give, given the things I just said about the whole isolation issue. Because if you're already in a spot where it's over and you have nothing, that's kind of like saying, how do I save somebody having a heart attack when they're already post-code? It's not that there's no way, it's that the problem began so many steps before. And I think the problem to solving the work-life balance question perhaps even the suicide depression question, to some degree, I'm not going to give the hubris to say that it's the whole solution, is to undermine the thing that even puts us there, and that's isolation. So if you are well-bonded, well-connected, then you are good to go. The question is, are the people you're well-bonded and connected to worthy of that? Because God forbid you're connected to people who are not exactly out there for you. That's just as bad, I'd assume, because you can have friends, you can have enemies. You could have people who you think are your friends who are actually not there for you at all. And when the chips are down, they're not actually there for you. And I can imagine the double hit of that is a different kind of devastating. So perhaps the best advice I can give as far as work-life balance is mind the company you keep and make sure those relationships are healthy and strong and, you know, worthy. Absolutely. You know, and I I feel like you and I could go on and on and on. But I think uh, actually this may be the the longest talk I've had so far and I've absolutely enjoyed it and I think I'm going to bring really? you back again oh yeah so I think I'm reaching close to an hour but you know nevertheless I think I'll be uh, bringing you back in the future for sure had definitely a fun time talking to you but here's the last question for you it's a personal one you don't have to answer it if you don't want to if you don't become a physician what would you be so this can go a couple different ways now that I really think about it if I never lost that bet I'd probably be a relatively crappy, unknown, unheard of scientist somewhere. <laughs> so that that's one outcome. Outcome two, sincerely, I'd probably be a writer. Given that my main job now is as a professor, my pet project is a podcast, and I'm doing stuff like this with you. The part of me that seeks answers, if it wasn't thrown into the medical world, would probably be a journalist. I think I'd be a journalist, man. I didn't think about that until just now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with that. I think I'd be a journalist. Listen, man, uh, and I say this, you as a physician could still be a journalist. Nobody can stop you from writing what you want to write. And you know that. It's true. That's the beauty of our field. You can still pursue what you'd like to pursue. And before we do close it, tell us a bit about your podcast. I've been following it. I enjoy it. If you can tell oh. us what it's about and how others can tune into it, that'd be pretty awesome. Oh, yeah, sure. So my buddy and I, Dr. James Aspen, decided to make a podcast. Why? Because there's a thousand emergency medicine and family medicine and this, that, and other medicine podcasts out there and like on iTunes. And we were trying to find a good osteopathic medicine show. One, because, you know, we're those kinds of nerds. We're podcast consumers. That's why we're doing stuff like this. And we found literally nothing. There's osteopath podcasts, as in, you know, people who do the manual treatments and whatnot, but not in the context of the whole medical scheme. There wasn't any. So you figure, look, 
there's nothing there. We're going to complain about it for a while, or we can just put up and shut up and make it. So he decided to make it. I decided to join on and help out. And now we have Roland Bones, the first and so far only osteopathic medicine podcast. We figured we'd make the show with two goals in mind. One would be to um, get the general public to just know what osteopathic medicine is, because we do a terrible job of explaining our field to the outside world, let alone to other physicians. And then the other goal was to help osteopathic trained doctors remember, because what, there's 113,000 DOs from what I understand, and there aren't 113,000 of us who regularly keep our manual skills sharp. And for all the good I've done for my patients, I had to attribute some large factor of that benefit I've given to my patients to the fact that I put my hands on them knowingly and intelligently. So have you ever seen um, The Lion King when like Mufasa's fading back and going remember to like his kid? Mm-hmm. That was kind of like the running joke of what the show was going to be, just like us talking about how cool our skill set is and all the stuff that you learn in med school actually matters. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. You can find us on um, on iTunes. Look up the word, you know, Rollin' R O L L I N Bones. Uh, we have a Twitter. We have an Instagram. Same name and all that good stuff. I can give you the information if you want to like, put it in the episode show notes or something like that as well, if you'd like. Absolutely, um, I would definitely have you give more info. I'll definitely put it up. But uh, it's definitely a good podcast. Actually, an amazing podcast. Really fun to listen to. A lot more technical than the way I'm doing my podcast. It's a lot more professional, as you would call it. And uh, nevertheless, there's so much you can learn from it. So if you are are an osteopathic physician that wants to restart your desire to do osteopathic manipulation, or you're just someone who wants to learn about what osteopathic medicine is, definitely tune into it. Thank you so much for the shout out, dude. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I really hope you enjoy the last few hours left of your residency training for the rest of your life and uh, subsequently enjoy your attending years. That's the plan, man. It's going to be a good, uh, good career. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. If you'd like to contact the show, please email me at doctorsdilemmapod at gmail.com. That is doctorsdilemmapod at gmail.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-S-D-I-L-E-M-M-A-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.